Good morning, Cornerstone. Joy to worship and um, praise our God together and fellowship as followers of Christ. Um, there are more of you than I expected on Memorial Day weekend, so it's a joy to be together again. What a blessed week it was for all of us, for me especially. Uh, I had the opportunity to watch some real encouraging clips online, and it was not the video clips of the Lakers coming back from a 20-point deficit in the third quarter. It was not the clips of uh, the Lakers blowing them out by 30 points on Friday night, although those were an encouragement. Those weren't, that's not what I'm referring to. I was particularly encouraged by the video testimonials on our website, and there were seven of our members were given the opportunity to share um, why they love Cornerstone. And hearing Bob's sermon last week on his love for Cornerstone, why we ought to love Christ Church. Such an encouragement to my heart. Um, reminded me of a story that I heard years ago about a couple that had marital problems. And uh, they've been married over 20 years. They finally went to see their pastor for counseling. And the, the wife brought up was that he, in 20 years, never said, I love you. And uh, the pastor was shocked that for 20 years his husband would not, had not said he loved his wife. His response was, on our wedding day, I told her I loved her. And if it changes, I'll let her know. Right? <laughs> if you have that mindset, talk to me afterwards. Because that's not right. But there was a sense of that at our church as well. In the beginning of our church, I think that was... Um, the hard cry for many of us, and um, the pace of ministry was much more leisurely. It wasn't as fast-paced or hectic. It's a lot more opportunities to voice our deep passion for Christ and for Christ's bride to one another. In the past several years, I think with the busyness of life and ministry, at least for me, I hadn't heard that as often and with such um, fervent... Um, fervent um, heart shared in our church. So it was such an encouragement to me to hear from you. And I know that those seven are a reflection of so many of us who are members of this dear church. That we're here because God first loved us. And our response is to love His bride. There is a sense um, with the laying the foundation that there's excitement in the air. Um, feels kind of like we're church planting all over again. This was how it was like when we first started 10 years ago. There was a buzz. Everyone was gearing up. Everyone was participating. Everyone was giving what, what a lot or little they had to a singular effort. And that sense has returned uh, with laying the foundation. Bob and I and all the shepherds, pastors, all the leaders uh, were so thankful to the Lord for God's orchestrating and, and putting this together in our, in our midst. And we look forward to... Um, and next Sunday will be that one sermon on finances and giving. And then look forward to Commitment Sunday on the 8th. And for us to rejoice together, uh, thank God and praise God together on the 22nd. Well, I, I wrestled with uh, what to preach this today. Um, to be wholly honest with you, 
I prepared over four sermons for for this Sunday. Um, I had kind of a schizophrenic week. And it's like going back and forth, all these passages, all these studies. And, um, and I landed on this topic because largely uh, Bob's sermon last week and the video clips I saw on our website. Because it reminded me of uh, my love for Cornerstone and my love for Christ Church. My wife and I had the opportunity to fellowship this week and we're sharing to one another how we love Christ, how we love Christ Church. We love the church much. We love the church because the church stands on biblical truths. It allows us to be Christians. It allows us to believe and not lose heart. Um, you know, we have been through the whole ministry game before. I've been involved in ministry churches for many years before we started Cornerstone. And I had become disillusioned. I met a lot of disillusioned pastors and ministers who saw, you know, behind the factory doors. I use that illustration, right? They saw how the sausages were made. So they grew a distaste for sausages. I guess my taste for Spam would go away if I were to visit the factory and saw actually what went into making, the, making those uh, mystery meat. Um, and so I've, I've, I've come quite close to losing heart, being disillusioned with ministry, um, but we praise God that thus far God has carried us here and we're able to maintain integrity. Uh, we strive after that. Strive after upholding God's word, not just in our public ministry, but in our private ministry as well. I can with confidence say that if each of you were to be with us at our elders' meetings and pastors' meetings and uh, eat with us and you know, hang out with us and listen in on what actually goes on behind the scenes, I would say you'd go away very encouraged. Um, you know, very shocked at how much we eat. You know, very shocked at how much time we spend, you know, talking about frivolous things like Lakers. At the same time, you go away encouraged just by how we are striving to maintain fidelity with the Word of God. We love the fact that... Um, that God has gifted our church with godly leaders. Godly men and women are indeed gifts to the bride of Christ. And um, you know, we are not settling in terms of leadership. Even our, our women are led by just these godly women of just intense love for Christ, who desire not to be labeled as wife or mom or a worker. But they want to be labeled as a Christian. And that is their life pursuit. And the fruit of that is seen in our Titus 2 ministry. How so many of you have taken that class, have shared with us, how encouraged you've been by just the women that, that we have in our church are maturing in Christ. And that's not a credit to our church. That credit goes to God because godly leaders are a gift that God gives to His people. We love the fact that uh, the unity that we find and find we have in Christ here at Cornerstone. Um, we don't have to have debates and controversies about doctrine and practice uh, because we're all standing and rooted in the Word of God. We have unity, so we can just pray. We can sing. We can just do ministry. We can just realize. We can just go do evangelism. We don't have to wrestle with 
all these controversies and debates and disagreements and differences in the church because we agree from top down to even our pebbles ministry workers there is this cemented unity in the word of God so we have this freedom to just minister just serve and just labor alright it's just like at work if your people have differences all this drama and controversy it's hard to work it's hard to get things done we're thankful that we don't have uh, that level of drama here at Cornerstone and so many more just to say we're thankful to see the gospel at work in people's lives to see that the gospel is true and it's also effectual it results in people being saved and results in believers maturing in their faith growing as believers it's um, a thrill to see that see believers grow in our midst you inspire me to be Christian you know better pastor I labor to, to cut straight the word of God I labor diligently to study the Bible to preach choice sermons to this church because of your love for Christ and your maturity in Christ so what inspires me yes the Lord and hit the cross but at a practical level your love for Christ inspires me to give that extra effort um, to give myself for the word of God so in light of this I wanted to return to the singular bedrock truth that we must never forget and this truth has helped me profoundly in my service in the church Um, it keeps me humble it keeps me in my place it reminds me what my role is in the church um it reminds me where I am to be, I'm to, how I am to see my, my, my self-perception. Um, this bedrock truth was first discovered in our study through the Gospel of Matthew years ago when we came across Matthew 16:18, when Christ said, and Bob spoke on this last week, um, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And that possessive word that Christ used, my church. He didn't use the article, the church. He used my church. And that thunders loudly. It's the first mention of ecclesia in the New Testament. And Christ takes possession of it. He declares that it belongs to Him. That the church is His. He calls it my church. Tells us, that we belong to Christ. Church belongs to no man, no organization, no denomination. It belongs to God's only Son. How did it come to belong to Him? First Peter 1, 18 and 19. Christ ransomed us. He bought us with His own precious blood, a lamb without blemish and defect. He bought us. He purchased us. He paid a ransom's price. Not with silver or gold. Not with things of this earth. He purchased this church. He purchased you and I. By giving of Him. This is consistent with the rest of the New Testament. 
1 Corinthians 12, 27. You are the body of Christ. Ephesians 1, 22-23. He is the head of the church and we are His body. Remember Acts 9. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? There is an intrinsic unity that exists between the church and Christ. We belong to Him. We are His church. He is our Lord, Master, and Owner. And He is the Shepherd. We are under-shepherds. We are slaves. We belong to Christ. We must have that um, truth, that reality embedded in our minds. And to the degree that that is embedded in your minds, and to the degree that you are renewed by that truth, it will guide you in everything in the church. It will be that compass that points to true north all the time. And so when you are struggling in ministry, struggling in relationships, struggling with friendships, you have difficulties in the church, your pride gets in the way, you have ulterior motives, hidden agenda, this truth will bring you back. This truth will shepherd your heart. This truth will open your eyes and help you to have a right perspective as we live out our lives as a Christian church. There are so many um, implications, direct implications from this truth. Highlight to you just three for our time together. We'd like for you to consider three direct implications of this truth that the church, capital church, and the small case, lowercase church, cornerstone church, belongs to Jesus Christ. First, because the church belongs to the Lord, the Word of God is and must be the sole and absolute authority over the church. Because Christ is the owner, He is the Master, He is the Lord, only the Word of God must be her authority and nothing else. It is our hard conviction of the leaders of our church that the Holy Scriptures, the old and new, are completely and holy, inerrant, infallible, and totally sufficient for salvation and sanctification. We believe that it is God's manual for the church. Therefore, we give no respect to creeds and councils. We give no loyalty to tradition or culture. Our heart is not warm towards people. Those who have um, authority apart from the Word of God. Our loyalty lies solely the Word of God. So many churches state that the Word of God, but functionally, authority is a person, a dictator, or a group of people, or a group that gives the most, or a denomination, or the denomination that owns the building, or the, the, the authority of the church is culture, or it's pragmatism, whatever feels good, whatever causes growth. Whatever causes people to come back. 
when the scripture is not the sole and absolute authority, it results in compromise. At the, at the profound level, at the deepest level, it is a compromise. It is like a heart attack. When you have a heart attack, it affects the whole body because that's what gives life to the whole body. And if the pulpit is compromised, and that's the heart, then it affects every part of the Christian church. It results in disobedience and results in a compromised church. The church must submit to the scriptures no matter the cost. I remember um, first hearing this story as a first-year seminarian at, at uh, Pastor John MacArthur was sharing with us um, from his first year in the ministry at Grady Church. Sharing this story to us to stand fast to the Word of God. Uh, he was, I think, 29 years old. He was uh, in his first months in serving this young pastor of about 300 people. After months, an elder who had great influence in the church, his members and relatives comprised of four over 40 people in the church. So what is that? You do the number, the math, like one-sixth of the church. He came to John MacArthur, an older man, came to John, who was like 30 years old, and said, I want you to marry my daughter. She's been engaged. She's, she's been dating this guy. They're engaged. I would like you to preside over the ceremony. He interviewed the couple, and it turned out the guy was not a Christian. She was a professing believer, and he was not a Christian. The Bible is clear. It's in Corinthians 6, 14 through 15, that uh, you must not be yoked together with an unbeliever. And that's spiritual enterprise, but direct implication is marriage. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can, had, can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? The direct consequence of that is a marriage between a Christian and non-Christian is unacceptable. Now, MacArthur knew what was at stake here. I mean, he knew why the elder asked him private, personally, directly to marry his daughter. And he knew what was at stake. He went to the board, explained the scriptures, explained his role as a pastor. Uh, he must stand the God. And you know what the board said? They said, you're right. Great. You don't have to marry this couple. The church will marry the couple. Right? So what are they doing? They're going to be pragmatic. We don't want you to compromise, but we'll compromise and protect you from being tainted by the world. Because, John, that's reality. That's real ministry. You have to compromise to you know, grow the church. And Pastor John, by the grace of God, said, No, we can't do this. I can't sit idly by and allow you to compromise as long as I don't compromise. It's not I belong to Christ. We belong to Christ. The church is Lord and Master, not just over individual Christians, not just over the pastor. The church is the Lord over the church. Christ is Lord over the church. And he explained to them, and they all agreed. They came to their senses. We must obey the word of God. While this elder was irate, immediately he uh, stormed out of the meeting, and his whole family and relatives, I think 40 plus members, left the church in the first few months of his ministry. But, I mean... I think he did okay, you know, Pastor MacArthur, right? What do you guys think? You know, 30 years later, he's just coasting along. I think he's doing, he survived that little, little mutiny in his church. And that reminds us of this truth. 
that God honors those who honor His word. Imagine if Pastor MacArthur compromised at that point. What if he said, you're right. I don't want to lose 40. He's an elder who gives probably one of the most for offering. He's got so much influence. He's got 40 people of his family, relatives, extended family in our church. What am I thinking? That's how the game is played. We'll just overlook it. I'll marry this couple. I mean, his compromise, just think about it. Like the ripple effect of that compromise, not just in his own life, his own integrity in studying the Word, his own ministry, the church, but his, the international ministry that he has today was all hanging in the balance of that singular decision. We praise God. Right. He stood on this conviction that Christ is the Lord, not just over him, but over the whole church. We must understand that the authority of the church comes from the Word of God. Authority of the church comes from the Word of God. Authority comes not from the size of the church. This was so difficult early on. Because when we're like 40 people, people equated the authority of Cornerstone with the size. It does not come from age. And it's little, little, it helps me a little bit that I have gray hair. Right? So it helps in this way. But it was more difficult when I was younger. Right? Because people saw authority with age. Or experience. Or life stage. And I had to remind myself, because my self-perception was warped as well. You know, growing up in America, you know, hero worship, celebrity worship, like success-driven culture. I had that self-perception as well. I'm a small church, therefore. I'm a youngster, therefore. I'm inexperienced, therefore. And the Word of God reminds me that my authority does not come from my age or experience or knowledge or ability or giftedness or as a church, our size or our number of ministries. No, the authority comes directly from the Word of God as a church and especially in the ministry of preaching ministry of preaching and this is why um, the word of God declares preaching is central to the church I mean let me just tie this all together the church belongs to Christ and because the church belongs to Christ the word of God must be the authority for the Word of God to be authority, what's central in the church must be preaching of the Word. What rallies the church together? What centers us, unites us? What causes us to gather? We gather around not a personality, not around a ministry, not around a culture, not around people. We gather around the Word of God to hear it proclaimed, hear it preached. Because when God's word is being preached, God is speaking. That is exactly what Christ did when He was doing ministry. He proclaimed the word of God. That is, what, that is exactly what Paul did in his ministry. He proclaimed God's word. And that is exactly what Paul instructed Timothy to do in his waning years. To preach the word of God. 1 Timothy 4.13 Until I come, devote yourself to the reading of Scripture, 
and to preaching and teaching. Timothy, do this. You read the Bible and then you preach it. You read the Bible and you teach it. You read the Bible and you explicate. You expose it. You explain the sense to the people. Neglect not this essential ministry as a pastor. For Second Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. Profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And the final chapter that Paul ever wrote, it is his um, last sermon, if you will, written on his deathbed, chapter 4, 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, in the presence of God and the presence of Christ Jesus. And the presence of God in Christ who will judge the living and the dead. And in light of His appearing, and in light of His kingdom. I mean, Paul is, is amping it up to highlight the importance of what he charged Timothy with. In light of all these things, I give you this charge, Timothy. Preach the Word. Preach the Word. The Word of God. Logos Theu. Preach God's truth. In season and out of season. His way of saying all the time. Always. In the church, preach the word. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Why? Because the word of God is central to the church. Why is the word of God central? Not anything else. Because the church belongs to to the one who inspired the word. He is our master, so we must listen to him. Not to anyone else. But sad to say, many churches have deviated from this central charge. Sad to say, the view of preaching is at an all-time low. Many churches have outright replaced biblical preaching with sharing and supplemented with um, dramas and skits, even clips of movies. I heard of a church where um, they showed a clip from Lord of the Rings, the battle scene, uh, for one of their sermons. Now, i got to ask, how do you preach the following Sunday, right? After you show that battle scene at church, how do you follow up like that? the CGI and, you know, all the action that goes on. How do you preach the Word? It's their way of saying preaching the Word is not sufficient, right? I mean, if you go to a restaurant and they uh, give you gifts, they have people in roller skates that, you know, bring food to you, right? They have all these, like, fancy things going on. You know, you know what you're saying. They're compensating. Fear is not good. They don't believe in their in the quality of their product. That's why they're compensating. But you go to some restaurants, it's a hole in the wall, literally a hole in the wall. And there's a line outside, right? And you go in there, and the wait, waiters and waiters they're rude to you, right? They're kind of like abrasive, and they're like almost upset at you. And you sit down, and it's dirty, it's like sticky, and the lighting is poor, and the water is straight out from the tap. There's a line outside. Because they're saying, look, we know you're going to come back regardless. 
No matter how rude we are, how awful we are in our service, you can put stuff in the water, you'll still come back. Because our food, right? Man, our specials are so good, we can't beat them away from, with a stick. Right? Likewise, in the church, right? you know what the leaders believe by what they compensate with. If their main meal is the word of God, or if their main attraction is something else. Many believe that preaching alone is not sufficient to save the lost. To save this um, postmodern, secular mind. Right? To save the sophisticated audience, 21st century in the Western world, this antiquated uh, method of uh, communication, of preaching is insufficient, is ineffectual to save the lost. You must communicate God's truth in a new and novel way, other ways, or people will perish for eternity. Right. A friend challenged me on this point many years ago. He told me, James, you have to be open to any and every method to save a person, right? but by any means necessary. Right? That's pragmatism. That's Malcolm X, right? That's pragmatism, right? Evidences out of, out of Scripture, spiritual experiences, movie clips, drama, whatever it takes, you need to employ the laws because preaching is insufficient. I said, no, I don't, I don't believe that at all. I said, I'm just, I believe God's ordained means of salvation is preaching the gospel, heralding it, proclaiming it, it's a, it's a key word of a servant, an ambassador, going to the marketplace and saying, Hear ye, hear ye, thus saith the king, and you proclaim his edict. You proclaim his decisions, his command. So the gospel is not something you consider. Gospel is a call to repentance, a call to obedience. It's not, it's not sharing, it's proclaiming. And he responded to James, Then what will you do? You have this guy in your church... And you preach the gospel, he rejects it. What are you going to do? I'll preach the gospel again. Okay, James, what if he rejects it again? What are you going to do? I'll proclaim the gospel again. Okay, James, 20 years has passed, and he still hasn't accepted Christ. What are you going to do? I'll just keep the gospel. And then what's going to happen, he said, after he dies? And I said, he'll go to hell. He'll go to hell. Because he rejected the gospel of Christ. Right? A man who rejects the gospel, preached to him, has rejected the gospel. Going to hell is a reality for most people in this world. Our job is not to get people not to go to Our job is to proclaim the truth and have God save people. Right? Salvation is of the Lord. Our our debate stopped. Because at that point, the division was not about preaching. The division was, who saves the lost? Who is sovereign? Who is in control? Who has free will? Does man have freedom ultimately, or does God have freedom? Whose God are we worshiping? God of the Bible, or God of this world? At that flashpoint division, Revealed the great chasm that separated us. He believed salvation was up to us, within our power, to convince a man to save him. 
Therefore, we must employ every possible method to save that person because it's in our ability. And I was on a whole different side. I, I believe I can't save anybody. Are you crazy? I mean, are you insane? I, mean, I can't even save myself. Right? I can't even like do simple things like wake up on time, right? I can't even like just really simple. I can't even do algebra two. And you want me to like save people? I mean, that's absurd, right? I believe all I can do is study the Bible and preach. And it is God who saves. And if they reject preaching of the word of the gospel, then they rejected the gospel. And he or she will go to hell. Preaching is ordained by God. That's what we must do. Again, this long line, because the word of God is central to our church. And why is the word of God central? Because Christ owns the church. That's our responsibility. Now let me do a little bit of shepherding here. I said this many years ago. We can always, you know, spend time um, thinking about this topic. The, the role of pastors is to preach. And the high point of the church is when the Word of God is preached. Your role is to listen. We honor the Word by preaching. You honor the Lord by listening to the Word of God. Our job as pastors is to faithfully and passionately preach and teach the Word of God. Your job as members is to faithfully and passionately listen, receive, adhere, take to heart God's Word is preached. Reverently and responsibly listening to God's Word preached is one of the highest forms of honoring and worshiping God. We think of worship as something we do. But worship at its highest form is receiving. Right? Is receiving. I mean, it goes back to Luke 10. The, the Mary and Martha illustration. Right? Martha was doing something good. Making, making food. Right? Make, making lunch. That's great. Mary was just sitting there listening to Christ. And Martha was upset. And Christ said, we know the story. Martha, you're busy with many things, but Mary has chosen one thing that is good. And he praised Mary because she was sitting at his feet, listening to Christ. Listening to God's Word. J.I. Packer said in in his book, The Preacher and Preaching, congregations never honor God more than by reverently listening to the Word with a full purpose of praising and obeying Him once they see what He has done and is doing and what they are called to do. I believe this is the one reason why so many Christians are growing and so many are not. And maybe just my own personal thought, this is why I think women generally are godlier than men. Right? Because women are better listeners. Right? Women, actually women listen. Men don't listen. Right? (laughs) Women actually listen when people talk. Guys, they're thinking of like what to say and they're not even listening. You want to get proof of that, just listen to talk radio, right? Listen to like sports radio and nobody's listening, everybody's talking. Right? It's just about women's radio where it's all just listening. Nobody, <laughs> all right? All right? I mean, w- listening is a means of grace, right? 
That's how we got saved. We were full of our own pride. And by God's grace, somebody said to go preach the gospel. And we listened. By God's grace. We heard it. We took it to heart. Before it was like, oh, we crazy. God, is, God exists. Uh, there is truth. The sin. Before we blew it off, we were filled with our own thoughts. Right in our own eyes. At that moment, though, God gave us grace and we listened and took to heart. And God saved us by listening to the gospel. So we were saved by listening. How do we grow by listening? It is by listening as well. How do we grow as, a belie- as believers? Listening as well. Right? It is a skill. Is it not listening? It's an ability. It's a discipline. There's a direct correlation between a person's, like anything in life and their ability to listen. Right? A, a good friend is a good listener. A bad friend is a poor listener. A good, good husband, right? Oh, he listens, right? Well, the number one or number two complaint of why is my husband doesn't listen to me, right? And then vice versa, a good wife listens to her husband, right? Doesn't blow. What is a good son, a good daughter, right? They listen. Parents are say, speaking, and a good son listens. A good daughter listens. So much is bound to listening in the world and also in the spiritual realm. Especially to the Word of God. So much tied to it. I said this many times. I use this illustration so often. But as pastors and elders, we meet with people and we share with each other. Oh, how did that meeting go with that guy? How did that meeting go with that you know person? And sometimes the pastor says, Oh, such a good listener. Oh, say no more. We know how it went. Must have been such an encouraging time. Must have been sweet fellowship. Must have been just wonderful having that time around the Word and fellowship. Once in a while they come back and say, Man, he just wasn't... That poor listener. Heart was full of pride and self-righteousness and stubbornness. Just... Not, not a good listener. I'll say no more. We know the rest of the story. The Bible, again and again, there's so many verses that pleads with us to listen. Proverbs one five. Let the wise listen. Proverbs one eight. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction. Proverbs four one. Listen, my sons. Pay attention. <coughs> Gain understanding. Ecclesiastes 5.1 Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Isaiah 1.10 Hear the word of the Lord. Matthew 17.5 Here's the audible voice of God who said, This is my Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. The audible voice of God thundered from the clouds, telling the disciples, Listen to none. Acts 2 for Peter stood up after Pentecost. Listen, fellow citizens of Israel. Listen, all of you who live in Jerusalem. And so on and on. Book of James, James 119. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. James 2.5 Listen, my dear brothers. James 4.13 Now listen, you who say. James 5.1 Now listen. Right. 
of all the things that we listen to, the most important thing we listen to is the Word of God preached on Sundays. So our job is to preach God's Word. Your job is to passionately listen to God's Word. Not be passive listeners. Right? Not like, is this going to be on a test? Right? Is this going to be on the quiz? Because if it's not, I don't have to write it. I don't have to remember it. I don't have to listen to it. Right? Not that mindset. It's God speaking. And my response, my heart attitude is a, is, is a direct correlation to my reverence of God whom is pre- speaking. My honor of God is tied to my listening. My reverence, my respect toward God is tied to my listening. Right? So, because the church belongs to the Lord, the Word of God is the absolute authority of the church. Secondly, because the church is the Lord, our service is an overflow of our love towards the master, love towards the owner. Right. So, today I was talking to Mike Sim and uh, this guy, where is he? Right, he's, he's here somewhere. Oh, there he is, Mike Sim, right? So you talk to me and you get used to you get used to the illustration. That means I don't have anything prepared. That's why. Right? <laughs> why talk? He was telling me he graduated second year of med school, studying residency in Anchor, commuting from Loma Linda. I don't know where exactly that is because it's so far away, right? Like it's out of like my Google Maps, like you know, my my default setting. Uh, he commutes out here. They come. He's in a setup ministry, so his wife drops him off, so she goes to Starbucks to study, and uh, he, she comes later. Um, and, uh, you know, my response is, man, thank you, brother. Right? Thank you for your service. But he understands, I understand, that he's not serving me. I'm, like, oh, I'm the pastor, so he's serving me. Or, I mean, he is, but he's not. He's not serving you. He is, but he is not. All of us, we understand that all our service, all our sacrifice, is an overflow of our love for the master, for the owner, for Jesus Christ. Right? That is why we serve like heart service. It's not just external labor, but it's a heart service. Uh, I used to have a lot of part-time jobs. I used to work at a gas station when I was in high school. And I mean, for me, days it rained were the best days because customers. Right? I loved it. And we close at nine. There'll be always people who come at eight fifty-five. Right? Right? We're about to close. And you know, I have poor work ethic. Eight fifty-five. That's too close to closing. We're closed. I would like advance my clock, you know, it's no mas, right? Uh, close, close the station. Why? Because, you know, like, I, I get 3.55 an hour, right? I remember full service, somebody tipped me a dime. I'm going to throw that dime back at that person, like, what? I mean, I check your gas, check your oil, inflate your tires, you give me a dime? Like, don't ever do that. I was very, I was very hurtful towards me. I was like a sophomore in high school still, but... Right? But it was not, I don't get more money as you know, more business. Right? Now, my parents have stores. They you know, have all these you know, pizza shop, you know, fish shop. Now, all this. For me, like, 9.05, we're still open. Come on in. Right? When the business is slow, my heart is burdened. When this is good, man, I rejoice. Because it's my parents' store. It's not somebody else. It's family. And what I did, I did not just externally, but with my heart, because it was my parents' store. Right? Completely different mindset. Right? 
So if the church belongs to, you know, the elders, then you just, you know, just work when we're watching you, right? But it's not ours, right? It belongs to the Lord, right? So we serve, not just externally, but we serve with our hearts, right? That's why we, be, we make it our ambition, right? Uh, Acts twenty twenty four. Paul said, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus had given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's ways. That's why we take ministry so seriously. We consider everything secondary to serving Christ because we know when we serve the church, we're serving her master. And finally, third implication of Christ being the owner of our church because the church is the Lord's, you and I, we exist. We are here for the glory of God and the glory of God alone. Right? We exist for God's glory. First Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Individually, whatever we do, we do it for God's glory. Now when we get together as a church, this command is not diminished. It is heightened. It is increased. There's synergy involved when believers gather together as a church. So this, import, this command is heightened that we do all things for the purpose of God's glory. Pastor MacArthur has written, It is essential that the church sees itself as an institution that exists for the glory of God and God alone. It is essential that our self-perception is consistent with the Word of God as a church that our ultimate task, ultimate purpose, our heart passion, gathering together as a church, is God's glory. Right? It's not to please man. It's not to grow. It's not so that we feel good about ourselves. It's not for self-esteem. It's not for any kind of pragmatic reason, any kind of earthly reason that it's that God is made more beautiful in our eyes and the eyes of the world. That we better see with great, greater clarity God's holiness, God's righteousness, God's sovereignty. All the beautiful, awesome, incredible attributes of God are highlighted by who we are and what we do. How do we glorify God? I'll close with this. Thomas Watson was helpful in his book, The Body of Divinity. He wrote, glorifying God consists in four things. Glorifying God consists in four things. First of all, appreciation. Right? Appreciation. To glorify God means to set God highest in thoughts. To have venerable esteem of Him in our minds. We glorify God, first of all, in the inner man. I saw Him in heaven. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool outwardly says God exists and God is great, but in his heart he says God doesn't exist. God doesn't know. God, God's not true. Right. A man who glorifies God is consistent. He declares the excellencies of God and in his heart, in his own mind, in the secret recesses of his heart, he admires, he appreciates God. He honors the Lord. We glorify God Pastor Watson wrote, when we are God admirers, we, 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 you know, we 
think about him. We admire him. We esteem him. And we, our, our last thoughts before we go to bed is about it's the greatness of God. How awesome he is. How beautiful, how merciful, how benevolent, how good, how loving, how just, how righteous, how long-suffering, how patient God is. We admire Him, His attributes, His works, His promises, His wisdom. To glorify God is to have God-admiring thoughts, to esteem Him excellently and more excellently with each passing day. That's the first way of glorifying God. Secondly, adoration. Adoration. Glorifying God consists in genuine, sincere Worship, where we gather together and we are God-centered. We are focused on God. We want to admire God together. We want to praise God, honor God, worship God. It's not about me. I want to stop thinking about myself. I want to stop thinking about this world and all its problems, all its ills. I want to stop thinking about what my concerns are, my anxieties. Because I am not important. I am not significant. The person who is significant is God. We devote time as a church to the preeminent one who is Yahweh and worship Him where everything is set in reference to God, His truth, and His deeds. Third is affection. Third is affection. So here's a challenge for us. There's orthodoxy, right? Right doctrine. Orthopraxy, right practice, right, right life. There's orthocardia. These two things must produce what Bob was saying last week, Elder Bob. Passion for Christ. Heart affection for Christ. This first love that we are so prone to forsake because we get so pulled away by by so many things I mean I, we so pulled away with things we forsake our first love for God the, the priority love God demands the greatest law that you know lawyers right, they came to Christ what is the most important law of all the thousands of laws in the Old Testament what is the greatest law just like page one brother right? what's so hard about this right? love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. That is the most important law. All other laws come after this central first law. That is how we glorify God. By having heart affection. We must be emotionally invested in God. His truth. His deeds, our ministry, Christ Church. It is not enough just to be spectators. Right? We must rejoice when the gospel goes forth. We must rejoice personally when people grow. We must rejoice when God is building up His church and when sent to the camp, when believers are suffering and struggling. Man, we must mourn. Not because we should, but because we do. We must be heartbroken. We must cry. We must mourn. We must grieve. We must take it personally. 
Because that shows, that, that glorifies God. Because it shows, demonstrates our love for the owner of the church. This love must be exuberant. Not a few drops, but a stream. It is superlative. It is intense. It is ardent. And finally, the final way we glorify God is subjection. I mean, Pastor Watson said this, you can't say it better. He said, this is when we dedicate ourselves to God and we stand ready, dressed for His service. Right? Where we stand ready. We glorify God when we are submitted to His word. Acts 5.29, Peter and the other apostles reply, we must obey God rather than men. mark of a godly church is that the people are obedient to the word of God we are submitted to God's truth individually and together as a body we take God's word at face value and we lay ourselves down we put ourselves we risk and we submit ourselves to God's truth when we do that we glorify God. We make much of God. And the world sees just the beauty of God. Not just by our doctrine, but by our lives. May God grant, may God grant to each of us and to our church this great privilege to glorify God together. It is our, our prayer. Maybe ten years from now, we will look back and we'll say, we still believe. Right? We have a lost heart. We haven't become disillusioned or callous. Right? We're not rolling our eyes. God has given us this grace where we still, we, we still believe in Christ's church. We still believe He is the owner. And we're still striving to that day to glorify Him. Let's pray. Father, the church was a mystery. The Old Testament prophets, they searched intently, diligently to, uh, to understand, discover your plan. But it was too marvel- marvelous. It was too wonderful to comprehend. And from them, but made known to us your plan for the Gentile nations that this world might see and know and experience the wonder, the beauty, the awesomeness of your of you and your truths and your redemptive plan of salvation for the whole world. That is our great privilege. That is our honor. And Lord, would you help us not to waste it? Help us not to turn aside and forget who is, who is our master, our Lord, who is our owner. Lord, we pray that this truth would... Uh, be our true compass that would guide us safely to the passage of life. The truth that you own us, we belong to you, and that your church belongs to you. We pray that this 
but sober our hearts and cause us to uh, put our hands that which you have called us to do to glorify you to appreciate to adore to, to submit ourselves wholly to your word that our, we'll subject, be subjected to your truth that our whole lives would be uh, one of affection one of passionate love toward you and it be done through your, your church through your people through your bride we thank you God for for being our master we are unworthy slaves may we be faithful in your sight pleasing to you in Christ's name we pray Amen